Streaming live from Treaty 1 territory in the heartland of the Métis Nation, the place where the great waterways meet and the heart of Turtle Island, I'm excited to host the first newly launched Toronto podcast, where we find ourselves in the territory of Toronto under the treaty of a dish with one spoon and is home to some of the most diverse population in Canada. I'm your host and artistic director, Julie Negum, and this is my second episode, Unsettling Place where we will unpack ideas of colonialism and slavery as the grounding foundation of the creation of cities with amazing thinkers such as Dr. Nagaro Ellis, Odario Williams, Dr. Jolene Rickard, and Natasha Henry. This episode's settling place warrants a deep listening to the long and complex histories of Turtle Island, or AKA United States and Canada, in relationship to the Pacific spaces such as Aratoa, AKA New Zealand. These folks open up their personal stories within their own experiences of historical knowledge of space and place through black and brown bodies that have moved through these places for millennia. Cityscapes are littered with conflicting memories and histories of these spaces since there is a great deal at stake. In urban spaces, history is buried, rewritten, retold, or simply erased or forgotten as new communities and developments are reconstructed over the old. These layers of historical memory begin to collide, mutate, and transform depending on who's in power and who's telling the stories. This episode begins with the historical narrative from Dr. Jolene Rickard, who grounds us in her knowledge. I really appreciate you reaching out and asking me these important questions about how place is constructed yet unsettled. And the particular reason I appreciate it is because as a Haudenosaunee woman, I'm specifically from the Tuscarora Nation, and our homeland extends through to the two settler states we both deal with, Canada and the United States. And so people in our communities, and I think probably across communities in North America, uh, recall that the border came to us. And so every time we make an intervention on those colonial structures and remind people in North America about the deep history of Indigenous peoples, I think it's really important. As artists, most of our work is, has been critiqued or criticized because we tend to really focus on land. But our focus on land, I think, is warranted because it's specifically because of our relationship to place, that we've been able to maintain as much knowledge and transmission of knowledge about specific relationships to place that we would consider to be millennial and incredibly old. But what happens when our people are forcibly displaced? We're thrust onto other people's lands. How do we begin to mitigate those circumstances? And so as a Tuscarora, of course, my people have been through all of those conditions. In our own oral history, we have a very ancient migration story that does locate us in the northern Iroquois territories. We traveled south, lived in the Carolinas for a thousand years plus, and then we were forcibly displaced. And so our displacement happened very early in the 1700s, instigated by arrivements or aggressors or colonizers from Europe, specifically the Palatine German Swiss people, who 
probably were fleeing some kind of oppression in their homeland. And they came here, but they didn't really evolve, I think, from their own inability to maintain their own spaces. And so they carried out a behavior that I think they learned about displacing people. And so my peoples were forcibly displaced. And uh, we made our way back north to our northern family, the Haudenosaunee. Uh, We have lived in the northern territories for over 300 years. But before this happened, another kind of impact took place on our people, and it's that at early contact, we were also forced into slavery, except the project of uh, forcing indigenous peoples into slavery uh, wasn't as successful as the colonizer hoped it would have been. And so the enslavement of African-Americans or black people became the next solution in order to fuel uh, a kind of emergent United States as well as a broad uh, colonial empire. And this enslavement of brown bodies is basically uh, one of the pillars upon which North America is built. And of course, the other is Another aspect of this is the dispossession of our land. And so it's a very close association for me, this idea of uh, either belonging to place or unsettling place. Each place is layered with unsettling histories and stories that deeply impact our relationship to where we live. Many people walk through the spaces with little knowledge of the narratives that lay beneath us. We are told slavery didn't exist in Canada. We learned that in our school systems, that our nation state was where slaves could come to be free, with little knowledge of the complex layers of people being part of indentured labor. And in Montreal, the wrongly accused enslaved black woman named Marie-Joseph Angelique was sentenced to death for her alleged crime of setting the slave owner's house on fire in 1774. We can learn from people like Natasha Henry, who is the president of the Ontario Black History Society and is working on her incredible PhD research on the experience of black men, women, and children who were enslaved in Ontario and Toronto. Enslavement in Ontario began and was an extension of the practice that was introduced by the French under the French regime in the 1600s, uh, beginning in Eastern Canada from the the Maritime Provinces and and Quebec. And then when the British gained control and were victorious in the Seven Years' War, then we start to see a change in the colonial regime and the British was the ruling empire. And enslavement was sustained through this uh, the British colonial government. There is a distinction in the demographics of the people who were enslaved between the two regimes. Under the French, it was largely indigenous people who were enslaved. About two-thirds of those who were enslaved were indigenous, and about a third who were enslaved were, were black people. And that's according to the research that Marcel Trudel did. And that covers from the time period of the early 1600s until about uh, 1760 when the regimes transitioned. 
there were a very small number. There were a small number. And again, Ontario wasn't as settled at that time. Montreal was like, you know, the colonial center. And there were emerging um, places in the maritime provinces. And so there, there weren't a lot of people who were enslaved in Ontario. And there were a small number. And with the change in the in the regime, and then with the British losing the American Revolution, there was a flood of uh, loyalists who relocated to here to um, to Upper Canada, then Upper Canada, and now what we call Ontario, and in other places in the country as well to settle. And what happened was a lot of these loyalists were also bringing with them the black people that they enslaved. And so through the, the British um, settlement, we start to see a shift in the demographics where the people who were enslaved were black people who were held enslaved, and those numbers grew. And so there's been some guesstimations around how many were enslaved in the province of Ontario of about 500. And interestingly, this estimate comes from um, the work of a judge and a lay historian, William Riddell, who, as who, who provided this guesstimate in 1920, so this year marks 100 years, uh, we see that it was upheld and maintained by legislation and by private contract law. And slavery was practiced in the province of Ontario from, as I said, the transition of the British power, British power in 1760s, until into well into um, the 1800s, and then ultimately enslavement was abolished in 1834 throughout most um, British colonies, including here in Canada. And we also start to see that it was it was commonplace and it was accepted. It was part of woven into the social fabric and organization of the growing and emerging colony. And we also see that through enslavement that we see and are can able to examine the racial hierarchy and structuring of colonial society, which, you know, when we're able to make the connections between the past and the present, we begin to see how, you know, the legacies of that and then connect it to the broader phenomenon of the transatlantic slave trade and, you know, hundreds of years of enslavement of African people around the world. Toronto is embedded in that history and in looking at Toronto as well, it really connects to and helps us to better understand the broader uh, workings um, and operations of of slavery. Uh, I curated self-guided walking tour called Brought in Bondage, the enslaved Africans in town of York, which was what Toronto was called then. And in looking at Toronto, and Toronto be, begins to be settled by the British colonists, is when the seat of the colonial government moves from Newark, um, which is now Niagara-on-the-Lake, and moves from Newark to Toronto in 1798. In looking at that transition, we see that Newark as the center of the province was one of the places that had the highest concentration of enslaved black people. And then when it, when the seat of the government moves to Toronto, the legislative members, the politicians who relocate either permanently or temporarily 
to fulfill their their job to take on their role. Some of these people also brought with them the African people who they enslaved. And in the tour that I curated, I talk about these uh, individuals who were enslaved, uh, and they were documented in a number of uh, archival records. There were about 13 uh, black people, men, women, and children who were enslaved in Toronto, in downtown Toronto. They were, as I said, so there were 13 of them, and they were enslaved by William Jarvis, who was the first provincial secretary, um, and he enslaved six of those people. And then there was Peter Russell, who was the first uh, administrator of the colonial government and part of the executive council. And he enslaved three children and the mother, Peggy, and her children, Jupiter, uh, Amelia, and Millie. And her husband um, was a free man and he worked for wages for Peter Russell. And, you know, this complicated these relationships. It's so important to understand how families and people are impacted by colonialism and enslavement. It connects us to our lived experiences. I can't help but make the parallels to the Indigenous histories of the City of Toronto and how they layer into each other. As the first murder in Toronto was Indigenous people in the newly formed city of York, or Toronto, Chief Wabanaki and his wife were camping at the Toronto Islands. These islands are a sacred healing place for many Anishinaabe. This area is part of the story of a great storm that was caused by a Thunderbird who was responsible for shifting the islands away from the mainland. The chief and his family canoed over from the Toronto Islands to St. Lawrence Market to trade their goods. Once they had arrived to the market, they were confronted by a small group of British soldiers. These soldiers made advances at the chief's sister. The chief confronted the soldiers and requested them to stop making inappropriate advances towards her. The soldiers did not like having their authority questioned and began beating the chief. The soldiers continued to beat him so badly, the chief's wife could not stand by. She jumped into the fight and pleaded with them to stop. And instead of stopping, they hurt both of them. Both the chief and his wife were hurt so badly, they passed on. And their bodies marked the first murders for the city of York and the first trial. Sadly, the soldiers were acquitted based on lack of evidence because the translator for the Mississauga people were unable to appear. The trial proceeded without any testimony from the Mississaugas, and it sparked an uprising from the Mississaugas who consulted the three fires and decided not to destroy the city of York to revenge their chief and his wife's death. As we jump over to the other side of the planet to reflect on the colonial and contact histories in Aratoa, New Zealand, for the Maori people, there are so many connections to our history in both of these places. I'm super excited to speak to the only Maori art historian in New Zealand, Dr. Nagaro Ellis. So uh, Māori were here as Tangata Whenua from around 1100-1200 in Aotearoa, New Zealand, coming over from the Pacific in a series of waves. And until the arrival of Tasman in 1642 and Cook in 1769, um, we had um, many of our groups were moving around according to villages which were near our food sources. 
um, such as hunting and fishing and so forth. But some of our communities were much larger and were fortified and would have several thousand people living in them. So they would be kind of a, a form of a town um, and they had their own autonomy, their own um, social systems and so forth. And so when Cook and, Cook and the boys arrived, they saw some communities around the edge of the country and that's one of the things that happen in terms of the European imagination of Māori, certainly at that time, was that all Māori were living exactly how people around the coast were living. And of course, there were thousands of other Māori who were living on the inside of our two big islands um, and who were living slightly different lives with different values. Um, But that kind of imagination where Māori were subsistence living um, and not really that organised kind of continued through um, and was a ripe opportunity for whalers and sealers around the turn of the 19th century who came from the States particularly the eastern seaboard um, and really resourced out all the seals and whales around Aotearoa and they brought with them what we would call taratari people who were um, mischief people rubbish people who came onto our shores and impregnated our young women and left lots of venereal diseases. Um, and they, they started different types of trade, uh, introducing things like flour and sugar and alcohol. Um, and slowly Māori became dependent on these um, in many communities across both the islands through the 19th century. And because of these people arriving and being really disruptive in terms of um, our very settled societies, England came up with this idea of signing a treaty in 1840. Um, and so the treaty was really from a Māori perspective for for the British, the, for the Crown to try and rein in all of these men, primarily men, who were going around just being lawless. Uh, but from the English perspective, it was a statement of sovereignty, and that's really been the the issue coming forward through to the 20th century, um, is whether it was sovereignty or whether it was um, kawanatanga or governorship. And so over the 19th century, Māori reacted with the repercussions of the treaty in various ways. Some sought to um, seek out new trading opportunities and many groups by the 1850s were very prosperous in many ways, such as Ngāti on the East Coast who had um, schooners going back and forth with different goods between Auckland, the main city, by then and Sydney over in Australia. And for other communities, they decided that they would completely become self-sufficient. And so from the Crown's perspective, these large settlements, we would probably call them cities because they were, in fact, the definition of a city, which is large group of people, well-organised, town planning in both place, sanitation, lighting, all of that. Um, groups such as people at Parihaka, um, was were large communities which were seeking to be self-sufficient. They weren't being anti-crown, they were being self-sufficient and extending their own sense of sovereignty over the land that they had had for generations. The crown, of course, were not happy um, when communities like Parihaka emerged 
and slowly they began to encroach on the mana whenua there. By this time, around the 1840s to 1850s, we see the emergence of major cities which have retained to this day. We've got five major cities in Aotearoa. Um, Auckland, which is in the North Island. Tauranga, which is about a two-hour drive southeast from Auckland, which is mainly a town based around tourism and a very large port. Wellington, which is our capital city at the bottom of the North Island. And then two major cities in the South Island, Christchurch up the top um, and Dunedin, which is down the bottom. And so these emerged in the 1840s and 1850s. Um, They attracted lots of settlers initially from England, um, but gradually those from Australia came across who were often ex-convicts. And they came over and started setting up these towns which grew and grew and grew into cities. And probably our most English town out of everything, um, out of all the towns, all the cities, is Christchurch, which is very much based on the on the English model. So we have the river appropriately named Avon going all the way through. We have the streets laid out on a certain type of grid. And all the kind of the wonders of the British city being introduced into Christchurch. And that's really been a badge of honour for for white folk in Christchurch, even to this day, where they're very proud of this English-looking city where you go and you punt along the Avon and you think of England, which is really a nonsense because local Ngaitahu have been there for generations before then. And below the museum, there are certain springs all throughout the city and indeed all the cities that have been created, there are Māori names, there are Māori references to ancestors and their deeds and these have been completely overlooked, even in the naming of them, which are all English names, of course, except for Tauranga. The imperial roots of colonisation bury themselves into the landscape through the renaming of space. Renaming the new found land which was one of the first acts committed by the Governor-General John Graves Simcoe in Ontario, Canada. He renamed the landscape with English titles, trying to eradicate the Indigenous place names. Many of the British names have rooted themselves here, but at the same time, Indigenous place names resisted the renaming of the land. There is no better example of the Maori language and each of their place names that forces the colonial settler to push themselves outside of their mother tongue. Negro explains more of her political context within the largest city of New Zealand, Auckland. Auckland today, we call Tamaki Makoto and Mana Whenua, there are at least 10 different iwi who have Mana Whenua who have sovereignty over the land. For us at the University of Auckland, one of the main iwi is Ngāti Whātua Ki and they um, have had Mana Whenua in Auckland for many, many generations. And it really came to the fore in the 1970s when the government um, had taken their land and attempted to sell it to a land developer to, um, who would make huge amounts of money instead of giving it back to the um, ancestral owners. And a Ngāti Whātua moved in with some of their supporters onto the land and they, they occupied the land. And Mera Tamita made this most amazing film 
called Bastion Point Day 507, which records the last day, and I'm even getting goosebumps just thinking about it, the last day of occupation for Ngāti Whātua when the government, the Crown, sent in hundreds of police to forcibly remove Ngāti Whātua and their supporters from their own ancestral land. And it's the most amazing film. I show it to my students who have been born and raised in Tāmaki in Auckland. They can't believe that this happened. I mean, it was 1981, so for for many of them, they have no idea of how recent 1981 is. But the fact that this was, was so recent, and we've had a number of more recent kind of occupations around Tāmaki, Ihumato is one from 2019, uh, where there's been a pushback from mana whenua against increasing encroachment on their on their sovereignty. And that's been problematic and it's come to the fore and it attracts lots of people who want to come and support and just to reinforce to the Crown that it is still Māori land. Um, in terms of relationships between Māori and the Pacific, um, ancestrally, we have accounts of us going back to the Pacific around the year 1100, 1200. But more recently than that, we've had we've had Pacific peoples come over in the 20th century to address a labour shortage that we had in New Zealand, particularly in our large cities. And so they opened the borders for um, easy entry for people from the Pacific. Samoa, Tonga and so forth to come and work in the factories and other places. And it's really interesting if you think about the ways in which they transported their culture to how my mother, for instance, and other Māori in the 1960s came into the city. It seems like the 60s is a pivotal moment all across the globe. We see mass migrations of people to the cities within the North American context. At the same time, we have the 60 scoop of Indigenous children into non-Indigenous families, which has had devastating impact. And we continue to see those massive numbers of children in care, especially in the province of Manitoba. The 60s sees an explosion of migration to the cities from the Indigenous communities and new waves of people coming from various countries to find Canada as their new home. As Odario gives us some insight into his sense of belonging. Hmm, a sense of place or a sense of placement. Well, I've been thinking about my parents lately and their sense of place, actually, as immigrants. You see, we were born in a small village in Guyana, just above Brazil. It's in South America. And in the 70s and 80s, a lot of young families were racing out of the poor conditions to start a new life in North America. My parents were in their mid-twenties at the time. It's crazy to think about it. Uh, It's funny because my parents left Guyana for me to give me a better life. It's wild to think about it in that sense. I was only two when they left Guyana. And what's also interesting is that all these years, they never considered Winnipeg home. They always referred to Guyana as back home. When you're going back home, when you're going to take a vacation back home. And even though they own a home in Winnipeg, it was never really considered home. And as a result of that, I don't consider Winnipeg home either. But neither do I consider Guyana home because I left at such a young age. 
you know, there's no real connection. And I don't even consider Toronto home because I initially came to Toronto for work. So I guess I'm kind of homeless. I think many people feel this sense of homelessness or this loss of feeling of concept of home that Adario is expressing. At the same time, we need to think about those historical connections that Natasha is explaining within the context of Toronto and her relationship to that space and history. Keeping central the lives and experiences of those who were enslaved and also troubling a lot of the histories related to some of these places, the erasure or the invisibility of the realities of enslavement and, you know, to help further that conversation and that learning. It does, it, it impacts me in how I move about the world and how I'm making sense and remaking sense, if, the, if you can understand that, remaking sense of right, my sense of place and my placemaking. I was born and raised in Toronto. And um, one of the questions that has always, that propelled me into what I do was as a young person, I wanted to get a better understanding of, you know, if or who, you know, the Black people were who lived in Toronto before me and how long had they been here? Um, and not only in Toronto, but also in Ontario and also in, in Canada. And, you know, not knowing that at a particular point um, and walking through some of these spaces and you can read these spaces or put yourself into these places and consider yourself to be new or unfamiliar or these spaces are marked as white spaces or, you know, so you don't necessarily make a connection to to that. And for me personally, I have connected to these places and to Toronto through my experience and through history, through my learning of history. And so when I go down, you know, to, um, and I used to live nearby, you know, near Jarvis Street. And so when I, you know, I see the name or you're driving on the street or you're walking and you're at the corner of uh, Sherwood and Adelaide. And, and so now I can kind of visualize envisioning the six people who were enslaved by um, William Jarvis and his wife, Hannah. So oftentimes now when I'm walking through these spaces or thinking about, you know, history coming um, out of slavery and, and those who were free and were establishing themselves as, um, you know, in downtown Toronto, along Richmond and Adelaide. So I, I think about those spaces differently when I'm moving around them and envision, you know, what life may have been like. But also then it really it changed my sense of connection to that in that, you know, I'm able to say, well, I know that Black people have been here for as long as this colonial settlement you know, had begun and was established and continue to be here. And so then it kind of positions me different to think differently about that space and to, to be more confident in asserting and claiming that space, if that makes sense. Yes, totally makes sense to me. The more histories I unpack, the more I feel those stories creep up from the ground and into my entire being. I think about all the families and people impacted by colonialism, slavery, and forced relocation. I also reflect on the connections between us and how we can work together for a better future. And really, no one says it better, as Jolene explains. 
I think we have more work to do because the Haudenosaunee and the Underground Railroad are in the same territory. And although there's some gesturing towards our collaboration with the facilitators of the Underground Railroad, it isn't something that I've found direct evidence of yet. But we do know that there were many Indigenous people who went to Canada from our communities. And at the same period of time, according to a discussion I've had with former director of the Woodland Cultural Center and important cultural thinker, Tom Hill from the Six Nations community, he recalled an oral history in his family that Indigenous or Haudenosaunee peoples who had Black blood or had were coming out of who were themselves biracial were found it more found it more a safer place to go to Canada than to stay in the United States at a particular period of time. And so some of this work has been done around looking at in particular Baptist hymnals and the influence of or the conflation of kinds of music that would have come up through the freemen or enslaved communities of Africans and Black people in combination with Haudenosaunee people. And I think it's a really rich history, and I look forward to the time when our people can begin to recognize or begin to work together and and more allied thinking and and community, a spirit of, uh, more of a spirit of anti-racist spirit in all of our community. And I think that uh, we need to shift the tides, I guess, that we need to shift our attitude to, to actually a more, a broader perspective on uh, how to coexist, how to coexist in a positive way with all of these people that come have come from all different parts of the world uh, to be here. But at the same period of time, at the same time, I think it, it doesn't need to just be a one-way shift, but we also, people who are coming here from other parts of the world, I think they need to respect, be more respectful of what our people, Indigenous people, have done for thousands of years. In our current climate of Black and Indigenous lives matter, we continue to see people working together to understand our relationship to place as we acknowledge the territories we live and work on. This can be complicated from within our own communities because of the pervasive systems that teach us to keep ourselves down as Odario expands. Oh, slavery. Slavery is a tricky thing, isn't it? I mean, it's just right there. It's a few generations ago, just still tampering with our minds and even our well-being. It's crazy. It's fascinating. It's really a mental struggle at this point. You know, what people of color are allowed to do, what they think they are allowed to do or can or cannot do, what they're capable of, what they're not capable of. You know, i got to be honest... Sometimes it was my own community growing up. Some family members and close friends and colleagues, they consistently told me I wasn't capable of accomplishing certain things, accomplishing certain dreams, 
It really irritated me because I just always had to look to my inner light for energy and belief in myself because there were so many people around me that just wouldn't uh, entertain that. You want to be an entertainer? Nah, you can't do that. I was told that often. No one wants to listen to a black immigrant kid from Winnipeg, man. It's just never going to happen. I really, really had to fight. I had to fight my own community to find the belief system. You know, I call it the community cloud. Uh, when you and I spoke earlier, you explained it as lateral violence. I really like that. It, it puts some perspective into the uphill battle that I've had growing up and, and trying to achieve my goals. <laughs> well, our goals and experiences are impacted by our families and upbringing, whether we like it or not. I think about all the things my own family has taught me about strength and resistance. For me, I would argue there is this magnetic pole that draws people over the vast distance of the Pacific Ocean. This could be the fire that rests deep below the water, sparking a connection to our sacred fires on Turtle Island. Like a moth, we are drawn to the light of the fire in the distant locations, forging bonds between knowledges and embodied practices. The actual physical distances between many of the smaller islands scattered throughout the Pacific Ocean and the larger ones, such as Australia and Aotoa. They have resulted in their own distinct cultures. Each location has its local histories and cultural practices, which become more transparent with each reoccurring visit. Nigero opens up and explains a little bit about her own family. So my mother was born and raised up in Kawakawa up north and she was um, in many ways her whole generation as a product of colonisation because her, both her parents were Māori first language yet her and many, many of her first generation of first cousins were not taught the language because it wasn't seen as the way of, of moving forward and the way of being... Um, a 20th century Māori. And so they came into the city being brought up, you know, close to the marae, surrounded by whānau, surrounded by those values, but not the language. And thousands and thousands came in. She came in to go to teacher's college, as did her sister, as did her cousin. Um, and lots of them came in looking for different opportunities. Um, and this was really forced from World War Two when... Uh, many of our men left and they came back and they were treated like terribly. They weren't given the same opportunities as their white counterparts. And so there was so, so much unsettling in the 1950s that many of them in the 1960s decided to relocate. And so their journeys as uh, diasporic Māori, really, to move into the cities are similar to others who are landing in the cities in the 1960s from the Pacific. And in many ways, there was a, um, a link there because for the first time in cities like Auckland, there was this explosion of thousands of Māori and Pacific peoples coming into the city. And we see it as um, the legacy of that today because... Um, our biggest uh, group going forward in Tāmaki in terms of an ethnic group are going to be Māori and Pacific. So we're going to have at least, I think, something like a third of our population are going to be Māori and Pacific in the next 10 years, which is really exciting. 
We didn't have black breeding here, as far as I know. We didn't have black breeding. We certainly had slavery. We had Māori had concepts of enslaving our um, our enemies. Um, and that was a practice that continued. I'm the descendant of one. My namesake's great-grandfather was, his mother was taken from Makoya Aina in 19, 1823. But into the 19th century, we could certainly think about slavery and in relation to the ways in which our ancestors, our people were taken and arrested and then made to work on different places. They were made to, for instance, the ones arrested from Parihaku and Taranaki were taken down to the bottom of the South Island. Most of the roads in Dunedin, the stonework was built by Māori slave labour from Parihaka. Some of those men died. They were living in caves. They had no heating, no adequate food. Histories of slavery and indentured labour is pervasive across the ocean. And for many Pacific people, they were enslaved or forced to work on sugar, cotton, and tea plantations. Some were moved to railway construction projects in the British colonies, the West Indies, Africa, Southeast Asia, and Australia. These forced migrations push people into new relationships to place. Many artists work from these locations, histories, and experiences. And as Jolene expands on her own practice and understanding to place. You know, I'll, I'll just make a comment about I began really looking carefully at and corn, something that my family was deeply involved in my whole life, and the heritage of white corn, which some people do call Tuscarora white corn. We had an oral history that after we were forcibly displaced and spent a hundred years to migrate north, I mean. I've been thinking about that a great deal. Our community actually sent a group of young people on the physical walk of what it meant to walk with hundreds of people from the Carolinas, from North Carolina, up to our current homeland in Western New York. And, you know, to think about that structurally has been a really challenging uh, historical and personal journey. And so... Everybody knows about the Cherokee Trail of Tears, but very few people understand the multiple dispossessions that many of our people have experienced. And so we were taken in by the Haudenosaunee. And, you know, there's a discrepancy there. Some people say we were adopted. Some people say we were welcomed home. But, you know, we have the same language. You know, we left the territory before the coming of the peacemaker. Therefore, that's why we're not signified on the original diamonds of the five uh, of the uh, Hiawatha Belt. But uh, we were taken in and a brace was added in the Confederacy for the Sixth Nation when many other people, many other nations were seeking uh, refuge under the Tree of Peace, which is the metaphor of the uh, Confederacy or the home of the House of the Extended Rafters. And so, you know, that's kind of a separate dialogue, but it's something that I've been consistently working on within my work, and it's like creating a sense of place. 
The way that food sovereignty is a trail beautifully articulated through Jolene's work and words is a pressing issue within climate change and our global shifts towards a new world order. We can see that food and land are so intrinsically bound together. Our histories of contact and dispossession are visual cues in the work of Lisa Rehana and others. So many artists are taking up this relationship to the gaze and stories that are being told from their own experiences and histories as Nagero expands on this topic. We just had Lisa Rehana do her amazing Empress of Venus. And then the next one is Shigeyuki Kihara, who is a Samoan uh, Japanese artist. And so showing that their links with, with the Pacific and particularly, and the impact that colonization has had uh, through their work. So with uh, Yuki, uh, many of her photographic practice has really sought to look at and examine carefully the practices of colonial photographers and the ways in which these often they were creeps really because what they were taking photos of prepubescent girls and showing them in their salons and and getting a kick out of that and so yuki has been looking at this practice and saying well what can we do now and let's think about the impact that those kinds of photographs have had and artists have been also just going home a lot more. Many of them are going through programs such as at Toi Mairangi on Toi Haukura and at Massey with Bob Yanke and learning more about their own whānau hapu, um, whānau hapu iwi uh, histories and thinking about where they came from. And so going right back into ancestral times. So I think of Mata'aho, the collective of four women from Massey Māori women and the, their work such as Mahuika that they did at the Honolulu Biennale, um, who was our goddess of fire, our deity of fire, and the ways in which they surrounded a building with these amazing monumental textiles and these um, gorgeous colours. And so being Māori today is very enriching as an artist, but it's also challenging in terms of the types of funding that they can get the types of opportunities that they can get. And one of the things that the digital world and the internet has done is open up opportunities to meet up, like me with you and, and with others, and to um, funding to go to conferences and to meet other artists. So the, the world where once in the 80s might have been so far away, now as Indigenous peoples, it's so much more, uh, it's much, much closer. And, and we, we think and we talk about being Indigenous, the impact of colonisation, the ongoing processes of colonisation. Our Indigenous knowledge is grounded in an understanding of where we come from, the land we inhabit, our relationships and knowledge that is gifted to us. I contemplate how people push through each of their own histories and stories that impact each of us so differently. I just love the way Odario explains his inner light which I hope will inspire all of us into the future so we can find our own spark. You know, I referred to my inner light a lot. Uh, it's the only way I could describe it. You know, that belief system. It's difficult to acquire. I try to inspire that with, you know, friends and folks around me the best I can. 
because I had to fight for what really made me an individual individuality man that was far more important to me than the community because growing up it was quite fickle my own community and and the way we behaved that uh, that mental slavery if you will um you know during my formative years i didn't want to wear the trendy colors i didn't want to speak the trendy slang and walk the trendy walk and I always got teased repeatedly for doing that. I'm just fortunate that I kept that individuality strong, uh, despite the fact that I was regarded as weird sometimes. Uh, I was a loner sometimes. I jumped around to a lot of little inner circles just because I didn't really feel at home with one particular social circle. Uh, but... I didn't know that this was going to lead to the career that I'm having now. Um, it's crazy because the work I do today, you know, my radio job, my musical projects, community work, I was hired to do these things as the individual that I became, that I am. They hired that very individual to do his thing. Uh, so anyone out there, trust me, if you get through those dark times, be yourself. Trust in your own belief system. You don't want to. You don't want to be someone else. On that note, I couldn't have said it better. You have to belong in your own understanding of place and self. So I guess I'll leave it there then. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to say chimigwich, marci, and thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible. And tune in again for Nui's Belonging to Place. Belonging to Place.